0: Welcome back, Uh, we have our final panel of the day. I know it's been a long day, although uh, so many people are still here, it's great to see everyone. Uh, This is our looking ahead panel for the term ahead, and this one's a little bit more informal uh, than the other panels kind of discussing uh, various cases that are coming up, that might be coming up, in case they're being litigated, maritime law, Tom really wants to weigh in here. Um. Oh, By the way, for anyone who's wondering about the CLE code for Virginia CLE, it's NGG. 1376. And as in Nancy, G as in Glucksburg, and G as in Griggs versus Duke Power. Yeah. NGG 1376. I'm gonna introduce the panelists all at the same time and then we'll uh, engage in some conversation. Jan will go first. So Jan Crawford is the political correspondent and chief legal correspondent for CBS News. She appears regularly on CBS Evening News, Face the Nation, CBS This Morning, CBS Sunday Morning. She's the author of Supreme Conflict, the inside story of the struggle for the control of the United States Supreme Court. She's a graduate of the University of Alabama and we were talking beforehand, I'm a Sooners fan but because Jalen Hurts is with the Sooners, we, I can say roll tide uh, for this year. Um, there we go. <laughs> and the University of Chicago Law. Um, and we have uh, Tom Goldstein, who's best known as one of the nation's most experienced Supreme Court practitioners, and the founder of Blog. He has served as counsel to one of the parties in roughly 10% of all the court's merit cases for the past 15 years, personally arguing 41, although I think these numbers might be higher now. Uh, Only three lawyers of the court's modern history have argued more cases in private practice. Perhaps more than anyone else, Tom represents the complete spectrum of litigants before the court, including maritime law. so he really wants to talk about it afterwards. You can ask him about it, (laughs) and his work is not associated with any perspective or ideology, and that I can confirm. And finally, Elizabeth Slattery from the Heritage Foundation who pinned the Looking Ahead article for the Cato Supreme Court Review. She's a legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. There she researches and writes on topics such as civil rights, rule of law, and separation of powers. She's published widely in law reviews and popular press and was cited with Paul Larkin uh, in Kaiser and by Gorsuch and the Kaiser decision. She hosts a podcast called SCOTUS 101, which I commend to you. She's a graduate of Xavier University and George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. We uh, can welcome to the panel, and I'll sit down we can start the conversation
1: going with Jen. Well, thank you so much and uh, thank you all for coming today and for having us all here. Um, you know, it's, it's um, so delightful to be able to talk about this upcoming term uh, as opposed to what we were discussing last term uh, in terms of the case lineup, uh, which uh, kind of proved to be pretty thin last year in terms of news, uh, but also where we were at this time last year on Constitution Day. And uh, we're gonna look ahead, but I feel like I gotta start a little bit by looking back uh, to, to some of the things that kind of unfolded last term. And I mean, it's obviously uh, a year ago, yesterday, was when the news broke in the Washington Post uh, about allegations against uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, setting off a firestorm in Washington that uh, rages to this day, including uh, the last couple days. So I apologize if my preparation on some of these cases is not as in-depth as it would have been were it not for the New York Times, oh. uh, but <laughs> I have a little distracted in the last couple days. Um, but, you know, once we uh, got through that, I mean, think about what that meant even in terms of the functioning of the Supreme Court last year. Justice Kavanaugh, of course, missed... Uh, the the first uh, uh, arguments. He had not been confirmed in the first Monday of October. And uh, as I said, the the term last year was really, in my view, kind of a dud. Uh, There was not a lot of those hot button issue cases that we like to uh, write about and that people like to hear about in hour-long panel discussions at 345. So it meant for some challenging uh, summaries. and and what was generally a a quiet term. um, And there is some sense, and the justices say that this is not the case, but nonetheless, there is still some sense that that was deliberate, that the court chose to stay out of some of these more contentious issues because the spotlight had been so hot on the court, and in particular on Justice Kavanaugh, um, it was best just to kind of take a lower profile. And as we see, they did defer a number of um, high profile issues that they're taking up this term. The, the issue of politicization of the Supreme Court is one that I think the justices are quite troubled about. Some of that's out of their control. It's the nature of the way the confirmation process has evolved over the years to be quite uh, political um, to different degrees, depending on who's been nominated and which party. Um, But even the chief justice, I think, uh, if you remember uh, this time last year after uh, the Kavanaugh matter kind of broke and then going into October, uh, gave that speech in Minnesota where he talked about his concerns about that. And I thought I would just, since this is Constitution Day, um, the chief justice then at the time said, the courts do not speak for the people but we speak for the Constitution. Our role is very clear. We are to interpret the Constitution and the laws of the United States and ensure that the political branches act within them. And then, you know, he went on to cite these landmark Supreme Court decisions that would have potentially come out very differently if the justices were influenced by politics. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education, for example, and, uh, you know, Korematsu uh, being another where they bowed to pressure um, in a quite... um, uh, shameful way. Um, other justices also spoke about the politicization of the courts, uh, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, Justice Ginsburg, uh, again, that that is a, a significant concern. And so as I said, they, I think that there's some sense that they punted on some of those cases last term just to let things kind of calm down. And one of the cases that kept getting deferred and getting deferred is going to be one of the most significant cases of the term, no matter what, the court still continues to add to its docket. Now, we do these term previews every year um, with a kind of a limited hand that we've been dealt. So we'll spend a lot of time talking about some cases that may prove at the end of the day not to be the big cases that everyone's focused on because the docket is incomplete, of course. So they've taken now, I think, 50 cases, about 50 cases. So they'll continue to add more cases uh, through the fall and uh, early winter Uh, including a number when they return for their long conference before they uh, return to the bench uh, the first Monday in October. Um, But the... the first major case that's going to get a lot of press, and it will be significant, the, the plaza will be packed with protesters. Uh, the lines will have formed long you know, before uh, the arguments outside the court, uh, people spending the night you know, overnight potentially to get one of those prize seats inside the courtroom. Although now, you know, they pay people, you can pay people to wait in line for you. You can also do that, I've heard, at Rose's Luxury, but I've never tried that. <laughs> um, but that, of course, is the case uh, involving uh, employment discrimination against gays, lesbians, transgender uh, employees, and uh, whether or not Title VII uh, applies to people who've been discriminated against because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, uh, as opposed to just being discrimination based on sex. Now, um, for many years, since 1964, essentially, the courts of appeals were unanimously in agreement that Title VII uh, was limited to, based on someone's sex, their biological gender. Uh, But in recent years, we've had three separate federal appeals courts uh, kind of take up the issue and split, and uh, hold in the split that, yes, in uh, uh, one case... Uh, that it does cover sexual orientation, gender identity, and then the others that it does not. So the court obviously has kind of been at a point now where it's gonna to have to take up this case uh after deferring on it and they'll hear arguments on that uh on Tuesday, right? Isn't that one on Tuesday? The eight, is it?
2: Yeah, because the, the this Tuesday the term will not started started yet.
1: Right, with the eight, yeah. In right. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, not the first Monday in October, but it'll be the second, the first Tuesday in October. Um, and, you know, that's got uh, obviously will have captivated no matter what cases the court continues to add to its docket. That will be a, a pivotal uh, case of the term. And the question is, of course, whether or not the court is going to continue, and this raises other issues, I think, that are interesting for court watchers, uh, whether it'll continue in. the the role that we've seen recently of of issuing a number of rulings that have been quite favorable to gay rights, led by, of course, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Kennedy's not on the court now, so the question is, how will this court take a look at that issue, which will have an enormous impact across the country and will be quite controversial no matter what the justices decide. Um, There are a lot of different areas of the law that uh, the court now is pretty hard to predict because we have such a, a new court and, you know, there's that old adage that a new justice makes a new court. Uh, and the first term of a justice is also really a mistake to try to predict what they're going to do based on the first term. For example, this past term, I think Justice Kavanaugh was with the majority more than any other Not justice. Any other yes, more so. Is that going to hold? Um, you can't ever really say, based on a justice's first term, if that will Hold, I think Justice Souter is a great example of that. When his his first term, he was with conservatives more than 80% of the time. Um, And a year or two later, well, we all know how that went down. Um, So there are a number of issues, whether it's gay rights or criminal law, where the court was deeply divided, 5-4. The court is now different. And so the question is, were these cases going to follow a more predictable path, uh, or not. And I think it's going to be hard to say, especially when you're looking at justices like Justice Kavanaugh, who doesn't tip his hand during an oral argument. It's really interesting when you cover the court, um, you get the sense from their questions how they're going to decide the case. Now, not always, and the chief doesn't always do this either, but typically you can tell when the justices um, are opposed to one side and when they support the other. And I mean, Scalia was a master at this, but even Souter, I mean, they would, you know, get up there and just start hammering these advocates uh, for, you know, weaknesses in their case. Uh, And then you would see the justice who supported that point of view kind of jump in and say, well, I think what he's trying to say is this, you know. So they were (laughs) pretty easy. Sometimes you could get back to the office and say, I think the court's probably going to go this way. It's harder to do that now because we, again, have a new court. These justices are less uh, known. We don't know whether or not some justices may rethink positions that have been on the court based on the new members coming in. And again, like Justice Kavanaugh, he plays devil's advocate more, I think, than any of the other justices do. Uh, So this case involving uh, gay rights and employment discrimination uh, will be, I think, hard to predict based on the argument. Who knows? We'll see. And I'm not really sure how I would predict this case based on uh, the briefs. And so I'm gonna ask my colleagues here at the panel do you think it's clear what they might do in that case? Did they, I mean, anyone? Because I think some of the cases that we're going to talk about, you, you might have a pretty good sense
0: of. Scalia wrote uh, Price Waterhouse, right? Is that the because of sex case? I- he wrote
1: correct? the on-call. On-call. On-
0: that, the, sorry, Sundauer that one, the, the, the on-call, yeah. So yeah. It's even, even some of the quote-unquote conservative justices might be unpredictable on this as possible. Um, that's my best handicapping on this.
3: I mean, my guess is that Scalia would be surprised that the Ancali decision might be used to further uh, this cause. Um, you know, I, I doubt that he would have seen, uh, in that case, I think it was something like male on mail harassment in the workplace and, and finding that that is encompassed within... Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination. So I think he he probably wouldn't have thought that this would extend to sexual orientation and gender identity falling within the the definition of of sex. But I I, I think you know we're going to see two competing visions of the law and how justices approach the law. On the one hand, we have people like Justice Gorsuch who say, you know, the text is the text. We follow the text where it goes. And then we have justices like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg who look, you know, sort of at the evolving purpose of the law. And, well, maybe it said this in 1964, but has the law contracted and expanded over time to mean something else? Um, I, I think this one is likely to fall... You know, along ideological lines, if if that's what you want to call it, but um, there could be some surprises, and we'll, well see I, what I happens would, at the argument. I
0: would agree; um, it's a best bet. But <laughs> Kagan, as a textualist, is very interesting, and I always think of the Yates case about the fish, which is just extremely literal reading of the text. Not that I don't think she's probably a vote in this, but but she's a pretty strict textualist. Tom, do you? Have- sure.
2: Well, I think that the left will think that it has a sufficient textual basis to recognize this form of discrimination under Title VII. And I think that the most conservative justices will certainly believe that that is not true and will be confident that when Congress passed the law in 1964 that nobody thought that it extended this far. I think that the problem for the plaintiffs is that they've probably gotten to the Supreme Court, and unavoidably so, you know, a decade early. In 20 years, I think it's going to be pretty inconceivable socially that we will think that employment discrimination against uh, gays and lesbians and transgendered individuals is legal. And in many states, it's already expressly illegal. But we are in a kind of transitional period. And I think that the conservatives, as a result, are more likely to take a more traditional view of the statute. And as Jan said, for a long, 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 long time, nobody thought that this was uh, within the ambit of the statute. I think that you know the plaintiffs probably best hope is to suggest to the Chief Justice and to Justice Kavanaugh that they are in effect going to be on the wrong side of history on this question to which they may well respond by writing an opinion that says look we understand that there are a lot of similarities between this and uh, discrimination on the basis of sex that there are a lot of stereotypes involved and maybe it would do well for Congress to pass a statute to address that but I would I think in the end it will be a, it is, I think, unquestionably an uphill climb. I don't think it's an impossible climb uh, that they would get one of the two of those uh, justices, but I think that the the defendants are probably in this conservative Supreme Court uh, certainly have the upper hand.
1: And I think to Tom's point, um, you know, one of the arguments uh, that the, the government makes and in, in arguing that it should be only because of sex and not sexual orientation and gender identity, is that Congress could have added this to the law, and they've done so in other sections of the the federal code, and they they have not. There have been multiple bills introduced to specifically prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation, uh, and they chose not to do so um, to to encompass that as well. So that, I, I agree, I think that's gonna be, you know, Take it up with Congress. I mean, there there is a, another route, you know, to to in this case. So I think it's probably an uphill climb as well. I mean, the government's position, the Justice Department has argued as well. Um, I mean that that essentially discrimination based on sex would mean that, uh, as Elizabeth was saying, uh, when um, let's say you have a, a man who is in a, a relationship with another man. Uh, The employer, if the employer were to fire someone uh, for being gay, a man who is gay, and he was also going to fire a woman who is gay, then they're not being treated differently because of sex. Um, As long as they're treating everyone the same based on their sex, as has long been understood by the courts until recently, as as opposed on their biological gender. so, you know, again, I think the fact of the matter is the argument that Congress could take this up is one that may end up carrying the day, too, in terms of the outcome.
3: Think, so anyway. I think something that might weigh on the minds of some of the justices is if if they rule for the employees in this case, rather than leaving this to the political process, to, you know, state legislators and, and to Congress, this could have implications for other Areas of of civil rights laws, you know, this could have implications for, um, you know, for for girls in sports and and sing, single sex bathrooms and things like that. So I, I think they'll they'll be aware of the broader implications of this ruling, uh, and you know, for for that reason, you know, I I think it would be better for an issue like this to to be. Litigated, for lack of a better term, litigated in Congress rather than before the Supreme Court because Congress can fashion remedy, uh, remedies that can take account for things like the the religious claims in the um, in the gender identity case, where you have the the funeral home that um, admits that it fired the individual because of the gender identity problem, uh, but saying that they have a religious objection to having someone on their staff. Um, so, you know, I, I think for that reason, it, it would be best if, if this was a matter left to Congress rather than the courts.
2: I do think that Jen is right to say that the case is very important on its own terms. The question of whether employees are uh, protected and whether businesses, uh, which may have other concerns as well, uh, are subject to the statute, but I think that probably the broadest concern or the broadest implication of the case is in its signaling function to society. I think that Obergefell was obviously very, very tangibly important to same-sex couples, but it also, in terms of the right to marry, but it also had you know, a broader signaling function to American society about whether this form of discrimination was appropriate and valid uh, or instead, whether as in terms of a sense of equality and justice that Justice Kennedy tried to convey, uh, we needed to try and end uh, these kinds of statutes. And so a lot will depend, I think, when it comes to the broader implications of the case of how the opinion is written. I think the Supreme Court has moved with society beyond the day uh, of a case like Bowers v. Hardwick in 1986, where you would convey in the course of the opinion some form of hostility to same-sex couples, to uh, gay and lesbian individuals, to transgendered individuals. And so in the... in. On the whole, even if the defendants win, I think it'll be in the context of an opinion that is not hostile to the plaintiffs in a way that would kind of set back uh, in a huge de- to a huge degree what it is that Justice Kennedy was trying to push forward when he was on the court
3: Elizabeth, do you want to go next yeah let's let's move on to guns um, so it's been it's been about a decade since the last big uh, Second Amendment case. In 2000, uh, 2008 and then in 2010, the Supreme Court decided first uh, the the case out of the District of Columbia, uh, the Heller case, uh, where it ruled that the Second Amendment protects an individual right. And then two years later, it took up a case McDonald um, out of Chicago, saying that this right also applies against the states in addition to the federal government. So since since those cases, um, the the Supreme Court hasn't taken up another. Um, significant Second Amendment case, and the lower courts have sort of been um, wandering in the wilderness of what, what to do with uh, with the standards that were laid down in those two cases. Uh, you know, what level of constitutional scrutiny should they be applying? The court didn't really make that clear. Um, and so there have been a number of, of cases that have come up in the last decade uh, that the court has declined to hear. So, now they have a case out of uh, New York um, challenging the the city's ban on transporting licensed handguns um, pretty much anywhere within city limits or outside of city limits, uh, except to one of seven approved gun ranges. So um, it, it, the regulations have been called some of the... Uh, the most severe gun restrictions in in the country, um, so much so that if a resident uh, had a a premises license, which is what you have to get in order to have a handgun in New York City, uh, if if this person moved from one location to another. Um, there was really no mechanism for taking that gun with you. So you're supposed to, I guess, leave it behind in your old apartment. Um, <laughs> well, that's a that, right. uh, gift. gift. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, welcome to the hood. So uh, members of a local shooting club challenged um, these regulations saying, "Look, this flunks every level of constitutional scrutiny. This burdens our um, right to travel because we can't even go across state lines if we want to go to New Jersey's um, fantastic shooting ranges. Uh, I don't know if they have them, but there you go." Uh, also, uh, saying that this violates the the Commerce Clause because New York is trying to control. Um, economic activity outside of its borders. Uh, So the the district court ruled for the city saying this was a reasonable reasonable regulation and it furthers the city's legitimate interest in public safety. I I guess forgot about the public safety interest of leaving your guns behind. Uh, And then the Second Circuit affirmed saying that this uh, imposes at most a trivial limitation on um, gun owners' a- a ability to lawfully possess firearms for self-defense. So now it's up at the Supreme Court and the challengers, um, you know, uh, ha- have <clears throat> had filed their brief. And then uh, over the summer, the city decided after six years of arguing that its regulations were constitutional and, and litigating this case, it decided to amend its regulations um, so to purportedly give the, the shooting club members everything that they want so they can take their handguns um, outside of the city uh, to gun ranges in, you know, outside of New York City. And if they own a second home, they can take their gun to their second home now. Um, so the the city uh, says that the case is moot now and and asks the court to uh, to dismiss the case. Um, instead, the justices last week scheduled it for argument in the December calendar, and the challengers say that look, we don't think this is mute, uh, moot. Moot. Um, they they filed their reply brief last week and said. Uh, you know the the city could change course again, uh, and we're looking for a ruling saying that that regulation was unconstitutional and barring the city from enacting it again in the future. Um, so I I think that this is you know it's not going to be dismissed before the argument. I I wouldn't think, uh, and I think that. It, you know, it's a, a great opportunity for um, the court to provide some clarity to the lower courts in this area. Um, I'd love to hear what, what you all think about what might happen uh, I if, don't think if they get to the merits. I, I don't think they get to no. decide I think, no. You know, I mean,
1: obviously with mootness, there's got to be a, you know, a controversy. Like it's something at stake. And I think that, I mean, the idea that, well, the city might change the law again, well, then, you know, come back when they do. Um, but
0: not because Sheldon Whitehouse convinced them not
1: to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, dem- the dem- senator's yeah. brief is uh, kind of, uh, yeah, there's a really interesting brief by uh, some of the Democratic senators, um, in particular Senator Whitehouse, and I think five, four or five others mm-hmm. on that yeah. case. Uh, it's almost weirdly kind of threatening the courts if it, you know, doesn't.
3: Reform or else. Yeah. yeah. they are all
1: bought off. Matter, um, but I, I think that <sighs> it's it's hard for the court to, to then reach a decision in a case where there's nothing at stake now. Um, Tom, but ever- whether or not they have argument or not, so I think, as some have suggested, they would like to do. Um, it's one thing. To me, it's just a matter of when. They're going to take the issue of mootness up in their first long conference, which is on October 1st. Um, so we may get some clarity when they release their first orders list, or we may not.
2: What do you think, Tom? So I I do think that they are going to be really mad. This is now a case about a doctrine called voluntary cessation, which says that if the defendant wins in the lower court and then changes its practices, uh, the courts need to be very certain that they won't start the same thing up again. Because otherwise, you can just evade judicial review, which is exactly what is going on here, of course. The Second Circuit upholds the statute, creates a binding precedent. Uh, And then then New York says, we were just kidding, uh, and has the advantage of that law. But they wait until the Supreme Court decides to hear the case, which is deeply frustrating to the justices. There have been a couple of other prominent examples of this. There was a case from Patterson, New Jersey, uh, involving affirmative action many years ago. uh, And then there was one of the cases about union agency fees, where uh, the more progressive side of a case just sees the handwriting on the wall when the Supreme Court steps in uh, the justices have been relatively protective of their jurisdiction, but it does run into, for example, the chief justice is real concerned about the case in controversy and mootness and the like. So I think in the end that they want to hold arguments so that they can yell at New York uh, and kind of satisfy, vent a little bit. Uh, and they may well write an opinion that has in it very strong suggestions that the reason that New York did this is because it's very, very difficult to imagine that the, stat- the regulation is constitutional, and thereby the plaintiffs end up winning without even having to get a formal opinion. Um, this case is, I think, but one again, of But
1: the- again, that would not, to Elizabeth's point, that's not necessarily going to give us... The guidance um, on the Second Amendment that we right. have not But had. even if
2: they decided the case, it might not give us that much guidance because I could certainly see some of the more liberal members of the Supreme Court saying, you know, on the assumption that Heller is good law, the statute is unconstitutional in order to get a nothing burger opinion out of the court. You know, the, the significance of the case, if it's decided, is not in the fact that New York's stat- regulation will inevitably struck down as it will be but rather what the Supreme Court says, because it has said so little. It has given almost no guidance whatsoever other than to say the Second Amendment is not a typo. Uh, and that is is thought to be is thought to be really the consequence of Justice Kennedy's limiting effect on the scope of the Second Amendment. That Justice Scalia, it's been reported, was really hamstrung in writing the Heller opinion by the need to have Justice Kennedy sign on to the majority. And now that he and in the wake of Heller and McDonald, which just extended it to the states and localities. Uh, the Supreme Court turned down as Elizabeth suggested all of the concealed carry cases all of the all of the you know magazine type cases that they were presented I think in all likelihood because nobody knew what Justice Kennedy would do so even if the New York case does get dismissed on the basis that it's moot we are about to enter the era in which we find out what the Supreme Court means about the Second Amendment so if not this case then the next time the gun rights advocates will just keep bringing these cases uh, and uh, there is a for example, about the bump stock regulation, uh, and there'll be many, many, many other cases. So it's, a, it's only a matter of time. They, you, this, this quest- these types of questions cannot be evaded forever.
0: Yeah, the bump stock one is more of an admin law one, but, but there are some ones on uh, from from Alan Gura on uh, the California has a law that makes it you could only own a gun that microstamps cartridges, but no one knows how to do this. So you can own an impossible gun. You have, you have a right to own. Impossible gun. Yes, only on a, if it's post 2013, there's like, like that one and then uh, the interstate transfer of handguns and some other ones. So I do agree with you that if this goes away, the, with all the dissents we've seen and some of the denial for cert, we had one case which was California's 10-day waiting a period as applied to people who already own guns. So you, like, you have like 30 guns and you, every time you have to buy a gun, you have to still wait 10 days, like whether or not that makes any sense and you get a denial, you get a, a dissent in that case. So I think they'll take one this year, no matter what. I agree.
1: I have a question, though. Do you, this is obviously not a case that's out there right now, but is there anything that suggests that the court would not allow a ban on um, some of these kind of assault weapons that have been at issue based on Heller with the current membership? You mean that they would, they would overturn a ban or they would allow ban? That they would, is there any sense Like a that this semi-auto court, AR-15? Yeah.
0: Well, the common use test, if that's actually the test, um, they would have to rewrite that test. Uh, I mean, that's the, as much as we can parse out Heller, it's like if it's in common use for self-defense, well, the AR-15 is the most commonly owned rifle in America.
1: But so, Heller also kind of suggests that they would allow... Uh, you know, reasonable restrictions on ownership, and you know, pretty limited to a handgun for self-defense in a home. I just think that's an interesting issue, as you know, we're seeing all these calls now uh, for broader gun bans, um, and what this court would do with that, based on the current composition.
2: Yeah, very, very, very hard to predict. I think. I mean, you you just don't take a case like Heller and end up successfully parsing individual words because the court won't have thought about you know particular cases it's it's going to end up being you know sui generis they're going to they're going to come at this and figure it out but c- how that think-
1: suggest that you could have res- you know restrictions on ownership including it seems to suggest some of these
2: uh, well i don't think that full auto you know full auto for example is is clearly the case, but I think that people who are involved in gun rights would say... But again, say, you
1: would think that's the case even with this, even, let's say, with Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh.
2: Yeah. I, I, I think it would be very, very, very difficult to say that there's a constitutional right to a full automatic weapon, a um, you know, fully operating machine gun. Uh, people involved with gun rights would say that it is extremely difficult to distinguish a semi-automatic long gun like an AR-15 from a lot of other things. And if you are serious about saying that you know, it's things in common usage, then that is a very, very, very common weapon used for Uh, self-defense. You know, the court is responsive to society as well. You are talking about having to hold all five members of the conservative court because none of the four more liberal members of the Supreme Court is going to recognize the validity of Heller to begin with. And so the question is, will every member of the conservative majority in the court recognize that right, or is there a single one who would, in response to you know, the, the the gun violence with the use of those weapons say, you know, no, I'm going to uphold this kind of ban. It's ultimately a moot point because, the you know, the Senate would never
0: pass such legislation, I think. Yeah, but a state law, possibly. So, so uh,
2: should, well, should we talk, talk about
3: in, but, yeah. DACA? Uh-huh. Yeah. DACA, that seems like another big one that's coming up. So this stems from... Uh, the originally the Obama administration back in 2012 decided to uh, unilaterally implement uh, the DREAM Act after President Obama repeatedly said, I'm not a king, I can't do this, then he had a change of heart. Um, so under the Deferred Action for Tri- Childhood Arrivals uh, program, around 800,000 um, illegal aliens under the age of uh, 30 who came to the U.S. as children were um, allowed to apply for deferred deportation, and work authorizations. Um, then the administration expanded the original DACA program and created a second program for the parents of um, U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents, um, the parents who were, not, um, uh, who were not citizens themselves. So the DACA ex- expansion and the DAPA program for the parents uh, was challenged in court um, back in, I think, 2014, and uh, the district court and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that it violated the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, the requirement that substantive rules go through um, notice and uh, public notice and comment. It went up to the Supreme Court. Um, the term when Justice Scalia passed away, it was one of the handful of cases, I think four or five, that were decided, uh, well, that ultimately weren't decided. They tied 4-4, so the lower court judgment Um, was affirmed. So fast forward to 2017, we have a new sheriff in town, we have a new administration, and the Department of Homeland Security under the uh, Trump administration announced that it was going to roll back the original DACA program because it had uh, concerns about the constitutionality of the program and its um, legality in light of the the ruling on the DACA expansion and on um, the DAPA program as well. Uh, So... The uh, the administration announced that it it would continue to process renewal requests for I think something like six months um, from when uh, when it announced the DACA rescission and this was uh, initially this was um, immediately challenged in in court as a violation of the APA um, for being arbitrary and capricious and a, a whole host of other claims equal protection due process other things like that so. Now it's at the Supreme Court. Um, there are several consolidated cases and uh, that, that resulted in district courts issuing um, nationwide injunctions, which is an issue that several of the justices are kind of interested in exploring. Um, Justice Gorsuch called them cosmic inju- injunctions. I think it was in the travel ban oral argument, and uh, Justice Thomas wrote... Um, wrote last term that he he has concerns about uh, universal injunctions, so this could be a vehicle for the court to kind of explore that that issue, which everybody kind of dislikes these uh, It just depends on you know who 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 is getting the injunction so we all we all dislike them at some point in time um so the Trump administration at the Supreme Court uh, argues that um that this is this is unreviewable, its decision here, uh, because the APA bars the review of um, agency enforcement de- decisions that are committed to the agency, uh, the agency's discretion by law. And even if it is reviewable, this is rational; it's not arbitrary and capricious because uh, the the DHS thinks that this is this is uh, potentially unconstitutional. Um, so, in terms of you know how how it might shake out at the court. Any case involving President Trump and even remotely relating to immigration tends to produce um, very heated rhetoric from the, the sort of left, left wing of the court. Um, you know, in the, the travel ban case, Justice Sotomayor compared that to the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II. Um, this past term, Justice Breyer said that adding the citizenship question back to the census, which, you know, we had for many, many, many decades, uh, would undermine public confidence in the integrity of our democracy. Um, so I think the administration is likely to face uh, some of the same skeptic- skepticism here, um, but I'd love to hear what, what you all think.
2: I mean, I think this is an enormously important stupid case. Um, <laughs> it is enormously important for the individuals involved and for immigration policy. It is enormously stupid because uh, if President Obama can create this program, President Trump obviously can withdraw it. So it's, you know, I think nine justices, if there were 28 justices on the Supreme Court, they would all agree that the president could withdraw DACA. But the problem here is one of political accountability, and that is, If the president had said, I dislike this program, I'm withdrawing it, we would not be here talking about it because that would be obviously lawful, I think. Instead, the president, I think, did try and have it both ways and say that he was very sympathetic to the DREAMers, but that they were withdrawing DACA on the ground, that they thought that the program was uh, unconstitutional or illegal. That is to say that they believed that President Obama didn't have the power to enact it in the first instance, so they had no choice but that to withdraw it. Um, and in that way uh, kind of avoided some of the political heat that would have come simply from withdrawing it in the first instance. And that's why we're here. Um, And I think that the justices, I would predict that the justices, or at least several of them, would be deeply frustrated by this uh, kind of conundrum that the administration won't just say we don't like the thing, um, and the court held on to the sur-petitions for a long time. This is one of the cases that Jan described as, or discussed as having been kicked over from one turn to another. They just put it on a shelf. It literally disappeared from the docket, and the court did nothing with them. I think potentially in the hope that the administration, which was stressing how vitally important it was that DACA be withdrawn, would write one sentence saying, we've decided to withdraw DACA. We don't like it. And that would be the end of the case. Um, so I think that the court may, several members of the court are going to look at this, I think like the chief justice ultimately resolved the census case, which was, I think, uh, really essentially saying, well, look, you can do this. Just tell me a valid reason for doing it and then go and do it. Let's not play games and say you're doing it for another reason that is either untruthful, they thought, in the census case, or just wrong in the case of DACA. Because the administration is putting the court's conservatives in a bit of a bind, you'll recall from the travel case, the expansive sense that they tried to convey and persuaded the court to adopt of the president's power in the field of immigration, that you know, the president really does get to make a lot of policy here. And if one were to accept that conception, then one would think that you know, look favorably upon something like President Obama's adoption of DACA. Uh, And we more puzzled at the idea that it had to be withdrawn because it was illegal or unconstitutional in the first place. Uh, What will happen in the end? uh, I think it will depend on the administration has been, as it got further along in the case, uh, from the District Court to the Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court, its briefing has gravitated in the direction of saying, we don't like it. Uh, rather than we were forced to withdraw it. And if they can persuade the Supreme Court that that's part of the administrative record here and was part of their rationale, then the administration will absolutely, obviously win. And if they can't do that, then the challengers have the chance of getting the chief as a, a fifth vote, as they did in the census case.
1: Um, You know, it's interesting as well that when you think about the chief and where he may come down on this and his role on the court, um, you have to go back a long time before we have a chief justice who's kind of now, I mean, I I guess you could kind of say he's at the center of the court. Uh, So he's not only at the center of the court sitting there in the center and, you know, but he is kind of the centrist vote right now. Uh, And to Tom's point, we've seen on some of these cases the census going back even further. Uh, the Obamacare case, um, where he appears to be kind of looking at this, his role as guarding of this institution and the politicization issue that we were talking about earlier. Um, this one could be another test for him, I agree. It's interesting, I, I saw the solicitor general was asked this question the other day, and you know, th- he was like, why didn't you guys just come up, just say that rationale? Like, it's so easy. And he said, well, because we think this rationale is rationales enough. So... That's not um, to who knows why they didn't. But, I mean, remember, the president I did, know why
2: they didn't. What do you mean, who knows?
1: Because, well, I why say, remember, is it because the president said, I love dreamers? Yes. Yeah. So they, it's put against another case where he's kind of put his lawyers in a weird position because he said, I love the dreamers. And then so they're trying to argue that, well, the, you know, even though he loves them. But as it, we've seen, some of his rhetoric evolve. The, the, the legal arguments have evolved, too, to Tom's point. Um, but
2: yeah um, I mean, one thing that is to say about the chief in that role, and certainly the census case and the Obamacare case are very significant examples of him being in the center, particularly given the post hoc reporting that suggests that he was originally with the conservatives in those cases and then changed his vote. Both the, cases. Right. Mm-hmm. The the thing that is interesting from the perspective of the left on the court is whether they have the potential, three potential fifth votes, so that they have the chief sometimes, they have Kavanaugh sometimes, and they have Gorsuch sometimes, mm-hmm. and particularly an array of criminal law cases. And so while we do think of, and the conventional wisdom is that the conservatives on the court are kind of monolithic and there's a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, if you would actually look at the data, it's the left on the court, the four members of the court that hang together kind of more reliably and then try and peel in uh, a fifth vote. Whether though they did that with some success last year and certainly much more successfully than they had the term before, Justice Kennedy's last term on the Supreme Court, whether they can continue to do that is a very open question because both Justice Gorsuch uh, and Justice Kavanaugh are very early on in their tenure and as Jan suggests, you never really, really can tell until they settle in more. But if Justice Gorsuch were to settle into the role of Justice Scalia in, the, in his late career where there were a variety of statutory criminal cases and constitutional criminal law cases where he was... With the left, uh, and if Justice Kavanaugh centers into a kind of Kennedy-like role, then the court won't have changed very much at all uh, with Justice uh, Kennedy's departure, uh, except perhaps on some very, you know, some of the the issues that he was vitally, vitally important on, like gay rights, like the death penalty. Uh, but uh, it is that is, I think, probably the principal puzzle that we see now. The other thing I will say is that. Justice Ken- I mentioned that Justice Kennedy was kind of a limiting agent on the justices willing to take gun cases. One other thing, and that's true across an array of issues, one other thing that is important to recognize is that Justice Kennedy's tenure on the court was also a break on conservative movement organizations bringing cases to the Supreme Court in the first instance. And, for example, on kind of the the momentum behind pro-life organizations and states that are very conservative, adopting abortion restrictions and the like. And so there are going to be a lot more cases simply put to the Supreme Court from the right. And you're going to have a lot more instances of cases like the New York gun cases where the left tries to pull the plug on cases. So the entire texture of the docket may change merely because conservatives are less afraid of what Justice Kennedy would have done with the case if it
0: got to them. I think, you know, Elizabeth, you were talking a little about abortion, the abortion case coming up. Yes. Yeah, so, I, well, I, so numbers...
1: this, this goes into... You're going to talk about the abortion case next? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the other thing that is interesting to look for as far as the chief and his role is his role in actually shaping the docket. Mm. And that kind yeah. of... The
0: numbers, just real quick, I think, if I remember this correctly, 51 times last term the four Democrat appointees voted in lockstep versus 37 times for the Republican appointees uh, on Tom's point. But
2: yes. Even the fact that we call them now the Democratic appointees and the Republican appointees tells you something about the conception of the court's ideology. Well, that's
0: me. I don't like to call them conservative or liberal. It's <laughs> <as laughs> a matter of course.
2: Like well,
3: I, we, like, we don't have Obama judges and Trump judges, yes. right, we like know. the, we have the chief justice and says. Yeah. Um, well, that tees up uh, a case that is has not been uh, granted review yet, but I think there's a there's a good chance the, the justices may take it up. Uh, it's a case out of Louisiana, uh, June Medical Service versus Gee, and this is a challenge to Louisiana's law that requires doctors who perform abortions to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. If this sounds familiar, that's because the court heard a very similar case out of Texas, uh, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, and that was decided back in 2016. Uh, and and there, uh, the court found that uh, the the Texas law was an undue burden on women's access to. Abortion. So here, one of Louisiana's four clinics, abortion clinics, challenged the law, cited Hellerstedt, and the district court um, ruled for for the clinic, um, finding that the the law advanced minimal health benefits while placing substantial burdens on women seeking an abortion. Uh, this went up to the Fifth Circuit, which reversed. And keep in mind that the law hadn't actually gone into effect at this point, so uh, this was just ruling based on what, the, what the, both sides estimated. So the, the Fifth Circuit says, said that you know, the assumption was that only one existing doctor in Louisiana would not be able to get admitting privileges, uh, and that no, none of the clinics would close due, the, due to the new law. So the clinic then came to the Supreme Court and asked for, um, for the justices to temporarily enjoin the law while they filed a cert petition. Uh, so over the protest of uh, Thomas, Gorsuch, Alito, and Kavanaugh, um, chief Ju- the chief justice with uh, the more liberal wing granted that request. Uh, justice Kavanaugh wrote... Um, I don't know if it was a, I guess a, a dissent from from the stay, um, saying that, look, we don't we don't need this stay because the status quo is basically preserved um, by the way that the law operates. Let's let it go into effect. There's a 45 day regulatory sort of transition period. So if during that time the doctors who apply for admitting privileges can't get them. Um, that won't affect women's ability to get an abortion during that time. Um, And also if clinics um, find that they are unable to meet some of the requirements of the law, there's a, a a path to uh, you know submitting a plan of correction uh, to show how they would you know sort of make steps to to meet the new requirements, um, and there's an administrative appeal process before the state would revoke the clinic's license, so Kavanaugh says you know let's let the law go into effect and kind of see what happens, and then. If there's a need for a challenge, then you know the the clinics can come back to us, um, but that's not what the uh, majority of the court did so June Medical services filed its cert petition I think back in in April, uh, and the case is scheduled for the October first long conference um, so we could see a grant in the near future if they decide uh, to take up to take up this case i I'd love to get your thoughts on why they would um issue the stay if they weren't going to take up uh, the the case when it came to them on cert.
2: I mean, I cannot imagine that they won't hear the case, particularly given the Chief Justice having voted to grant a stay. The Chief Justice who was in dissent in the original Texas case, I think, probably looks at this from an institutional perspective. We know that his view is that the statute, absent the Texas ruling, would be constitutional. But I mean, this statute looks a lot like the Texas statute. and I think he probably feels that it would you know, be um, the optics would not be good if the court were to so quickly in the wake of Justice Kennedy's departure to flip uh, on such on very, very, very thin ground. So you know, anything is possible the Chief Justice hasn't committed. We know that the four more liberal members of the court will vote to, vote to strike the statute down and will vote to grant review, given that the chief voted for a stay. So cert, I think, is automatic. Uh, and the question is whether the chief has been convinced, as he apparently, as as is suggested, uh, that the Texas decision is controlling, because remember, he did have the out of joining Justice Kavanaugh, who I think was probably writing for him, of saying, well, maybe we'll grant a stay later on, we don't have to do it, but instead granted it right out of the box. So I would say that, you know, this case will probably... Uh, stand for the proposition that conservative organizations, pro-life organizations, do need to take care in the precise cases that they bring to the court and, and behave very strategically for fear of running into institutional concerns by the chief justice of, not, of the court not being perceived of having kind of run away to the right.
0: And, of course, if we're talking about the chief justice's concerns for legitimacy, which anim- seems to animate some of his opinions, well, abortion will make those bubble up as much as they possibly could. And every abortion case has to be looked at in that light, I think. Um.
2: So maybe I'll talk about another case that's coming up. Yep, sure. Disloyal electors. Oh, yes. As a side, you know
0: that that there's there's an element of this in Cato's history. So in 1972, the first Libertarian Party candidate was John Hospers. Uh, who had a disloyal elector who voted for the Libertarian candidate. So one electoral vote for John Hospers, mm-hmm. his name was Roger McBride. Uh, in 76, the Libertarian Party decided to run Roger McBride <laughs> as the candidate. And Roger McBride, I think, had written his... I, I might get my history wrong. Wasn't argument. Roger
2: McBride in his highest and best use as an elector? Didn't we already know Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah <laughs> exa-
0: exactly. And so Roger McBride, I think he had written his master's thesis on why electors can be faithless. Uh, yeah. So then they ran it for president, and Ed Crane, the founder of Cato, uh, was the campaign manager, I believe, for that. And then, and then they were like, what, do you, what should we do next? And he said, Cato.
2: I see. So. And how did it go in
0: 76? Uh, not well. I mean... Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I had heard he had won, but I, was just, I didn't know if, he had, if he'd gotten any electors. Uh,
0: yeah, so that's the history I know. I'll probably get an email from Bose telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> about something about that, but it's something along those lines. So.
2: So as we're aware, the Electoral College can be, well, the Electoral College is what it is, and uh, I'm, no, I'm not a fan, but it, is, it does happen to be in the Constitution, which is a point in its favor. Uh, and uh, it can produce very close results. Uh, and there is this interesting thing is uh, you can maybe uh, there, there's an argument that you have to take the bitter with the suite with the Electoral College. And that is that what we do is we appoint electors and then we send them off to pick the president. Now, every state has a law saying that, you know, you're going to vote for the person that you were designated on the basis of. Uh, but uh, we did have in the last election some electors who uh, did not vote for who they were supposed to as a matter of state law. And Larry Lessig at Harvard brought a series of challenges to statutes that punish disloyal, faithless electors. And the lower courts have divided on their constitutionality, with the state Supreme Court upholding the laws and a federal court of appeals striking them down. And there is a pending sur-petition on this question, uh, which I think the court is obligated to take. Uh, The issue is obviously significant, potentially vitally significant in a very close election. Uh, and there's a circuit conflict. It is squarely presented. And so the court could, I, I predict the court will in June of 2020 issue a ruling on this question, which will draw the court, you know, a lot of political attention because of the prospect that the 2020 election will be very close uh, and someone could end up switching teams uh, and determine the presidency as a result. So uh, this, case, this, this question is kind of floated below the radar because we assume that electors will be uh, loyal because we assume that the electoral college is a bit of an uh, anachronistic joke, uh, but it actually could have enormous practical consequences. So I think in the next couple of months you'll hear the justices take this up.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me that like on merits issue, it, uh, clearly faithless electors are allowed. I think that it has to be true under the Constitution. That that's the point. It's supposed to be an intermediary between pure popular vote, and 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 dependence on Congress and the Senate, and you can exercise independent judgment. And But I, I don't know. I haven't fully gotten into the issue, but it will be fun to get into it when it comes up.
2: Yeah, I will say that this is the cousin of the percolating question of the national popular vote. So there is an interstate compact that has been adopted by a number of states that would go into effect if... States, uh, the states with a combined majority of the Electoral College, were to adopt it, and under the National Popular Vote State Compact, it would negate the Electoral College on some to some uh, extent, in the sense that those states having uh, a combined majority of the Electoral College would agree to assign their electors. To the winner of the national popular vote, so we would still formally have the electoral college, including the prospect of disloyal electors in it. But as a they, the states which have under the Constitution the power to choose their electors on whatever basis that they want would decide to do it on the basis of the national popular vote. So this is a, a kind of subconstitutional attempt to. Uh, uh, get rid of what uh, of objections to the Electoral College that has gained some momentum. There's a new study out today that strongly, you know, has, goes into a great deal of detail that the Electoral College does. Uh, ha- as, if you run hundreds of thousands of simulations, favors Republican candidates by one or two points. Uh, you can get models where the Republican candidate gets 42 or 43 percent and still wins the Electoral College. And so it's Republican legislatures that have been most hesitant to adopt the national popular vote, but it's being discussed very widely. And and its constitutionality will no doubt be challenged. I'm involved in that process, but the question of whether the stru- that's consistent with the structure of the Electoral College is a contested one.
0: Um, I, I'm going to just say we'll, we'll start getting – I'll start fielding questions and we can weigh in and we can start taking – we have 20 minutes. So the mics want to come down and then, Janie, do you want to say something?
1: No, I was just going to say, and it goes into the question. I mean, like, listen listen to what Tom just said. Like, that case, I mean, obviously would be tremendously controversial. And when would it come out? Where are the mics? Are in the middle of a presidential election. <laughs> um, and we've already just now talked about – there of the 50 cases that have already been put on the docket for this term <laughs> – You know, we're talking about guns, gay rights, potentially, I think most people agree, abortion, uh, immigration. I mean, these are, this is poised to be one of the most significant terms uh, in, certainly in recent years. And it's going to be decided in the middle of a contentious presidential election. Now, historically, presidential elections, the court is not really been a factor for voters, it's always been a curious thing why voters would you know, say that the court was not a factor in their decision. Obviously that changed in 2016 and it will be uh, based on what we've seen even now with some of the reporting over the last few days about Justice Kavanaugh and the President's engagement of that and cries for impeachment from Democrats and presidential candidates, uh, it will remain to be at the center of these very contentious uh, campaigns And that's a challenge for the court, which does have these concerns about politicization. Can I mention two other
2: things related to that very briefly? The first is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is going to insist as we go through the primaries that the question of court packing be one in which the candidates take a position. Mm-hmm. And so the question of whether to expand the size of the Supreme Court is going to be hotly debated. Uh, one cannot imagine for the Democratic Party an issue that would be more likely to guarantee the election, re-election of Donald Trump— Uh, than to motivate conservatives to come to the polls to preserve the current Supreme Court majority than court packing. But nonetheless, it is a fraught and very high-profile issue for progressives. The second thing that we cannot avoid talking about is the prospect that in the election year, uh, in the wake of what happened with uh, Chief Judge Garland of the D.C. Circuit, Uh, and the refusal to vote uh, on his nomination in a presidential election year, that that may recur again in 2020. And that would be an extremely fraught question as Mitch McConnell has tried to pivot back to say we have a longstanding tradition that in 2016 we will not do that. This is twenty twenty, of course, which is an entirely different <laughs> decade. Well, but also
1: there. the president and the senator would be in that's the same the, that's party. The that that last the name is
2: Trump and he has a U in his name. There I'm not doubting that there are thousands of material <laughs> distinctions. <laughs> it, it's obvious that the situations have nothing to do with each other at all as a matter of historical precedent, but we can all agree that I think there, are, there might be some who disagree.
0: Do well, you want for, to say for, a little bit that? For
3: my part, I hope that the, the Democratic candidates will put out lists of who they would like to put on the Supreme Court. I think that was a very uh, wise move on the part of candidate Trump um, to show that he could be, he could be and trusted. And the Heritage Foundation? Well, we, you know, we made some suggestions. <laughs> we made them publicly. Um, we're happy with uh, with who he ended up selecting for for both uh, both vacancies. But uh, I think that, you know, that was a really wise decision, and I think that you know may have carried the day for for why Trump was elected. Yes. So and yes.
0: uh, and all, everyone should be hoping for Justice Ginsburg continued or health or good health is always. Of course. Uh, but, um, if if Trump gets <coughs> to repli- re- nominate her replacement, the city might burn to the ground. So that's uh, that's that's be interesting. Yes, uh,
1: Ilya. Did it is hard a, to. I mean, you say that facetiously, but it is hard to really imagine what the debate. I mean, look what. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really being the, that facetious. Kavanaugh. Yeah. But
3: yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, really, if we thought the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation was contentious. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Ilya that, Soman, yeah. I think here with the first. Did you have your hand up? Okay. Uh, the, the,
4: sexual orientation and discrimination case. I wonder if you could speak a little further to this issue of the text. Sharing. I think if you just take it, this may be a case where there's a conflict between text and what you might call original meaning, uh, <laughs> that if you just look at the text, it seems like this stuff is covered. Because essentially, if you're saying, we will, refu- we will prefer we find hiring a man who dates women, but not a woman who dates women, then uh whether you're hiring a person who fits a particular description depends on whether they're a man or a woman. That's sort of textbook sex discrimination. And in other, in most other cases where uh, where a man is permitted to do something but a woman is not, uh, then. Uh, that counts as sex discrimination and uh, that's the case even if there are also similar things that uh, women are permitted to do but men are not, i.e. women uh, are permitted to date men but men are not permitted to date men in this uh, context. On the other hand, it is true that when this was enacted in 1964, virtually nobody thought that this kind of thing would be uh, covered. So uh, there is sort of a conflict between the text and the a, a kind of original understanding, if you will, that might pose a conflict for the conservative justices who are textualists, but also think that the text should be interpreted in light of its original understanding. So I wonder how you think they they they, they could resolve that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a difficult case and a, a difficult question that they'll be grappling with, um, complicated by, you know, sort of the, I don't know if you'd call it an extension with Price Waterhouse in 1989 and then the Ancali decision to say that you know uh the the definition of because of sex or discrimination based on sex also includes sex stereotyping and uh to to make it clear that you know it includes things like male on male harassment um you know i i think you're you're right that they'll be struggling with what what does the text literally say versus what is the sort of original public meaning of how it was understood uh in 1964 so you know, we'll we'll have to see um, how it shakes out. But I think it's a very, I think it's a it's a difficult case. It's a it's a difficult question.
0: Uh, in the back, very very back, uh, Paul Kammerer, whose arm is about to shake off. So this better be good, Paul. Great.
5: Drum roll, please. Yeah, thank you very much, good panel. I want to ask the panel a question that I asked the prior panel, namely what do you predict about the Bridgegate case in light of the uh, census case? And the difference between the prior panel now is that the petitioners filed their brief, uh, and just went online and got it, and their opening brief indeed does cite the census case. I'd like to just read a couple of sentences. They say about the census case, for their part, the dissenters are warned that opening a Pandora's box of pretext-based challenges to agency actions would enable partisans to use the courts to harangue executive officers through depositions, discovery, delay, and distraction. Under the Third, Second, Third Circuit's decision in this case, however, the Commerce Secretary would not merely have his decision be set aside, he would also be imprisoned for fraud. Whatever the proper bounds of judicial review as a matter of administrative law, this cannot be correct, uh, the theory for criminal law fraud. And they end by saying, It would transform the judiciary into a ministry of truth for every public official in the nation, and it would readily enable partisans not just to harangue and harass political opponents, but to prosecute and jail them. Panel's comments, please.
1: Well, first of all, you guys know the Bridgegate case, right? It's a quick refresher. That's when the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey shut down two lanes of the GW Bridge, which caused caused epic traffic jams going into Fort Lee, New Jersey. Um, the essential purpose of that was for a traffic study, uh, but the real purpose was the Democratic mayor of Fort Lee refused to re-endorse, uh governor chris christie 's or endorse governor chris christie 's election campaign so it raises these interesting questions about fraud um, and whether or not the fact that the traffic study was bogus and not the real purpose was a pretext whether to uh, aides who 've gotten swept up on this for kind of coming up with the whole scheme uh, whether they, you know, are criminally liable for defrauding uh, the government out of the extra time and money uh, that it had to spend on traffic control and and whatever. Um, You know, I mean, I will defer to to Tom and and Elizabeth on this, but, uh, you know, the argument has been made that this is just politics, and if this is going to be criminal, then there's no politics. So I would— but New I would, Jersey
0: politics. Right, yeah. You couldn't even do <laughs> you know, politics in New the, Jersey There was the Virginia anymore.
1: governor case. I mean, there's a lot of interesting cases where the court is, has kind of said, wait a minute, you know, criminal statutes, you know, political uh, decisions here. It's not really the place, and scaling back some of those— uh, but, you know, as for, in terms of the census case, I'm going to – Tom, what do you think? Well, I mean,
2: so the, I guess the parallel to the census case is that the court did require that the government turn square corners and said that it was appropriate to take a look at what was the actual rationale for what the agency did. I, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to look at the two in yeah. the same way. This is a case about the criminalization of politics and how far you can go and – there are limits, and it's very hard to identify what they are. This is a case where, as a litigator at the court, you say that the handwriting is on the wall at the cert grant mm-hmm. because the court didn't have to step into this at all. The petitioner here is not a particularly sympathetic one in the sense of this having been a really you know, serious, dirty trick that really did cause some material harm and inconvenience to a lot of people. Um, But uh, this court, for example, in the Virginia case that Jan inverted to, uh, and others, has been deeply concerned uh, with prosecutorial overreach in the realm of politics. Uh, and has wanted to kind of leave that alone and let the voters resolve those sorts of concerns rather than try and put people in jail. So in the wake of the cert it would be very surprising for the petitioner who is the defendant here to lose the case.
3: I agree with and that. I, I think on the panel before this, Andrew Gersman was talking about the, the census decision saying that, you know, it's sort of a, a ticket for this ride only. Uh, so I think he's probably right in that regard.
2: Except DACA, it might it might have a second ride on DACA.
0: Uh, we, I, uh, Trey, the mic's coming to you in the back there.
1: I've never been a ticket for this ride, only though, except for score.
0: <laughs> Although, actually, you, I identified Trey. So, I, 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 people, you say you have to identify yourself, but we believe in anonymous speech here at Cato. So, uh, uh, you don't necessarily. And as our AFP brief, we're about to fire. We will show. We really do. So, Trey.
4: Uh, thank you, Trey Mayfield. Uh, with respect to DACA, is there any? Uh, precedent in in the court's history, where you have an incidence of illegal government action, and then there's a reliance interest by some person or persons that's created thereby. And how has the court reacted to that?
1: Hmm.
0: This is related to the ACA case. I mean, I mean the reliance of the of the insurers. I mean, like the basic.
2: Question.
1: Ooh, that was a good, really good segue there.
0: But Moda Health. Yeah, I mean, that that case is fascinating. I don't know the answer to what have an answer to. That?
2: Well, do you want to just explain what you mean about Moda Health?
0: Um Moda Health is a case, so part of the ACA promised that they would that Congress would give insurers who were taking some hits from insuring people at guaranteed issue, community rating, and uh, the individual mandate, uh, and they would give them money, and then Congress decided not to. Uh and this is a this is three cases, I think, together. Three cases. Um uh, f- and I mean, there's for well, it was I mean, an
3: appropriations riders. So yeah, the yeah. Affordable Care Act said we're going to help sort of share the load for the first three years. That we open up these sort of risk corridors, and then subsequently in 2014, 15, and 16, Congress, it, through its appropriations process, decided just not to fund the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these companies, these insurance companies, you know, were relying on. The the good faith of the the government to, so that is to the pay up. that's the first problem. Yeah, <laughs> and then you know they. I think uh, in Paul Clement's brief, he calls it a twelve billion dollar bait and switch. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I think if you find some of the old contract cause jurisprudence has reliance elements to it with contracts with the government, which the contract clause still has some amount of teeth when you have a contract with the government. In terms of them impairing contracts with private individuals the Gold class case may that, like, kind of go out the yeah.
2: window. So in answer to the original question, then, what does the Supreme Court do if something is unconstitutional, but people rely on it? And then the Supreme Court gets around to saying that it was unconstitutional. The doctrine is actually very clear that that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, that the, the Supreme Court's doctrine says when we decide that something is unconstitutional, it was always unconstitutional. Uh, we just haven't mentioned it yet. Uh, and so reliance, interests, and the like, those come into play in the question context of stare decisis and whether the court will overturn a precedent. But when the Supreme Court decides a precedent, almost without exception, there is one extremely small narrow exception, the viability of which is not clear anymore. But the Supreme Court's doctrine is quite clear that says, you know, we're sorry, but uh, this uh, this law was always unconstitutional, or this is how the Constitution has always been understood from day one, and your reliance interests are not our problem.
0: I think the Catholic Church says the same thing. <laughs> that might al- be the basis it was, for it. it. was always meant this, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, up here in front on the right.
6: Mike Imbrivento, Staff Attorney, Norfolk Sheriff's Office. Um, I had a question about the interpretation of Heller. The Fourth Circuit, I believe last year, maybe the year before, held that an AR-15 is not covered by the Second Amendment, reading Heller and distinguishing it. And those of us who have carefully analyzed the case, look at the common usage exception. It's the most popular rifle in the country. It is not an assault weapon, all right? and. We know that. No self-respecting military person would assault a position with that. It's not automatic. It's not three-shot burst. However, they said that um, Justice Scalia also mentioned, and he did in the case, that weapons made purely for war or for use for military, and he gave the M-16 as the example, which is the fully auto variant. Assuming he knew what he was saying, (laughs) um, did they deny cert on that case? Is it going up? And... Will they engage? Because I've been told that the the Supreme Court is trying to get out of the gun business. They made their statement. They had their big moment. The rest is up to the states. If they've denied cert on that, does that say something, or will they get that case? Because that case means a lot, particularly to those of us in the mid-Atlantic region who are law-abiding gun owners who believe that
0: it is subject to Second Amendment protection.
3: I'm not sure the status of that that
0: that They did... Actually, Al, Al would know the best, but they did, they did deny that cert petition, right? Sorry? Yeah it, was a few years ago. yeah, it was a few years ago. Yeah, so, I mean, what's really happening here is that the, those, those, I don't think the Supreme Court is getting out of the gun game. They're about to get into it mm-hmm. because we, we, don't, we, we don't know. We, we, uh, we, have the, we have paragraphs in Heller that say these things are okay and then we have a common use test and we have some circuits just ignoring it entirely uh, and just pretending hell or almost never was decided. And I think Wilkinson, didn't J. Harvey Wilkinson write that up? Yeah, was on that panel. Um, so I, that we need clarification. And, I, and, and the, if the common use test means what it means, then it has some level of common uh, and that would include quote-unquote assault weapons.
3: Well, and a feature, a common feature of the Roberts court is that they tend to take baby steps. So, you know, the, the New York case may not get that far, but it could be a baby step in the direction of providing more guidance to the lower courts on how to, how to handle these cases. So
0: the question was addressing the classification of these regulations like the seal carry
6: and where you bring it, because that's
5: a core issue
0: of protection of the classification. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we just, we did a better test. All right, we need a we need a better test articulated uh, to for the to the lower course to apply. But actually, we have one minute, and we're going to change over for the main event. Uh, so I'm going to call this one, uh, so we can have a quick changeover. Please join me in thanking our panel.